morning. Thank you so much, Paul, for welcoming us and reading God's Word. It's great to have Paul and Ashley with us. We're, we're just thrilled to have them here and um, be serving with us for the next two years. So again, if you haven't had a chance to meet them yet, I would encourage you to, to stop by uh, and, and say hello to them this morning. Um, my name is Bill Gorman, and it's my privilege to serve as the campus pastor here at the Brookside Campus of Christ Community. And I just want to add my welcome to, to Paul's. We're just so glad that you're here with us this morning, especially if you are new with us. And, uh, and this is one of your first times here. Um, thanks for, for coming and, and joining us this morning. So uh, as we take some time this morning to look at this passage uh, that Paul read for us uh, from Hebrews chapter 13, um, I want to begin by asking uh, for God's help as we study His Word. We, we need His help to understand it and to apply it in our lives. And so I just want to begin uh, by asking that He would do that for us uh, now. Um, Father in heaven, we're so thankful for this day and, and even um, this day in kind of the life of the church as we think about um, in the church calendar celebrating Pentecost and the coming of the Holy Spirit, that you promised that you would send the Holy Spirit to us um, to help us to understand, to guide us into truth, um, to point us to Christ. And so I pray this morning as we look at this passage um, that we would see Jesus more clearly, um, that our lives would be transformed uh, by the gospel. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, I want to start off by doing something a little bit different uh, sometimes than I do as we begin, and, and that is I, I want to ask a, a question, and, and I actually want you—most of my questions are rhetorical, but I want to ask you a question this morning, and I actually want people to call out some answers. So um, some of you might be thinking, oh, man, I should have stayed home and, and watched my Netflix instead of coming and having to answer questions uh, at 10.30 on a Sunday morning. Um, but I just—you know, some people love to answer questions, some people don't. I'm just going to throw it out um, and, and just try out some answers. So when you think of church, this is the question, when you think of church, what comes to your mind? Or what is the church about? What is it supposed to be about? So when you think of church, what, what comes to your mind? What are some of the first things that just pop into your head? Shout some things out. Free coffee. Free coffee? Okay, yeah. If you're a Christ community, you better believe you're going to get some free coffee. Yeah. Family. family. Okay, good. Coffee, family. What else? Fellowship. Well, I heard something else. Community? Okay, good. So fellowship, family, community, coffee. What are some other things? Learning? What, what was it? Yeah, okay, so worship. Good. These are all great. Yeah, some others. Gr- praise? Are great. Yeah, yeah. So these are, these are all great answers. And, and one thing that, that no one—and these are—yeah, these are great answers. And one thing that no one said, and, and probably none of us actually would say, right, is, um, is that the church—when I think of the church, I think of, I think of me. I think that it's, about, that it's about me and the satisfaction of my needs and desires. And I think most of us would agree and want to affirm that the church is, is not about us, that, that it's about others, that it's about, um, that it's about God or it's about Christ. But functionally, often, I think when we pause to think, why am I a part of a church? Or maybe even more specifically, why am I part of, of, of this church? The, the answers that, that come to mind are, are ones that kind of have to do with the satisfaction of our needs and desires. So, so we love the stuff that, that we have for kids here, and, and we have great things for, for kids here. Or, or we think, man, the music is, is amazing at this church. And, and it's true. I mean, John's up here playing like the tambourine and the keyboard and the, I mean, he's, he's, it's, the music is good. And, and the friendships, and people mentioned the fellowship, the community. I have a great groups of, group of friends here at this church, and, and I love coming and, and connecting with those people that I know. And then, I mean, the, the preaching, right? I mean, am I right? The preaching is pretty good. Um, no, I mean, 
And, and, I, and I do hope that you love all of those elements uh, of church, and those are all great reasons to be here. Good teaching, uh, family, things for your kids. But, but are those the things that, that really what the church is about? And, and is that what the role of, of leaders in the church is all about? And now before we go any further, I just want to pause and say too that, that there is something weird, as you heard this text read, about me as a leader in the church, um, standing up here this morning, going to talk to you about leadership in the church and, and what the church should be. Um, but I want to let you in on kind of a little secret bef- before we go too much further with this. And that is that the people who are most in danger of making the church all about them are actually pastors. Of anyone sitting here in, in the room this morning, I'm the one who's probably at most danger of making the church all about me. We all have a tendency to do that, but, but I think pastors more than anyone are, are at risk of this. And, and, I, and I can guarantee that I have blown it in that regard at times. In fact, this week I was just, I was thinking and praying and, and was convicted that oftentimes I'm more concerned about the growth of Brookside, about this campus flourishing because of, of a measure of my own success somehow than, than the actually God doing something through the gospel. It's hard. It's hard not to become absorbed with it is yourself. So, so when we hear these words preached this morning from Hebrews 13, I, I don't want you to hear them as just directed at you, but directed at us, directed at me too. We all need this reminder. We all need this encouragement, and perhaps me most of all. So now on the one hand, we have a remarkably healthy congregation. Christ Community is a phenomenal church, um, and, it, and it's so healthy, and it is truly a delight to be your pastor um, it really is. Uh, and, and on the other hand, you and me, we, we all are so prone to individualism and consumerism because of the culture we live in. This is just the water that we swim in. So we need constant reminders of what the church is actually about, what it's supposed to be. You see, the church isn't about necessarily giving us what we want. The, the church is about guiding us to what we really need. The church isn't about giving us what we want, but guiding us into what we really need. So what does that look like? And there are at least four things here that kind of come out in this text um, that emerge from this passage. And this isn't an exhaustive list by any means of what the church is to be, but I think here we see four foundational pieces of what the church is to be about. And they are imitation, not independence. That's the first thing we see. It's about the theological, not just the therapeutic. That it's about sacrifice, not satisfaction. And then finally, we see that it's about gladness, not groaning. And so first we see in verse 7 that the church is about imitation rather than independence. Look at what the author writes in verse 7. If you have a, a Bible or grab one from the pew, I'd love, love even for you to look with me um, at, these, at these texts. It, the author writes, Remember your leaders and those who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And I think for most of us, the idea of imitation probably carries with it kind of a negative connotation, right? We always hear in advertising to accept no imitations. Um, we want to have, we want to be the original. But even as a people, when we think about our nation's history, we're, again, we're all about independence. I mean, we exist as a people because of a declaration of independence. So, so imitation, originality, uh, they seem, they're, they're far apart for, from us. Um, and and we, we, we gravitate toward independence, but we, we tend to shy away from Im- imitation. But when we think about imitation, it's actually essential for all growth 
and learning, and even for creativity. <laughs> it's funny, even with our, our six-month-old daughter, I'm already beginning to see the, the role of imitation as she starts to, to figure out, like, how to eat food and, and even to stick out her tongue back at us when we stick out our tongues. This imitation, it's all part of learning and growth. But also, and I think this could be surprising at first, the imitation is also vital to creativity, which those two things could seem a bit contrary, but they, they are, are absolutely essential uh, for creativity. I want you to listen to what, what thinker and, Aust- and author Austin Kleon points out. He has this great book called Steal Like an Artist. Just listen to what he writes. He says, nobody is born with a style or a voice, and, he, and he's writing kind of the artistic community. He says, we don't come out of the womb knowing who we are. In the beginning, we learn by pretending to be our heroes. We learn by copying. And he says, we're talking about practice here, not plagiarism. Plagiarism is trying to pass off someone else's work as your own. He says, copying copying is about reverse engineering. And then he says this, what to copy is a little bit trickier. And I think this is so insightful. He says, don't just steal the style. Steal the thinking behind the style. You don't want to look like your heroes. You want to see like your heroes. The reason to copy your heroes and their style is so that you might somehow get a glimpse into their minds. That's what you really want, to internalize their way of looking at the world. And that's exactly what the author is calling us to do with our leaders here in verse 7, to consider the outcome of their lives, to see is there something worth imitating in them. Because you see, leadership is about so much more than just transferring information it's about patterning your whole life after someone. So who, so who are these leaders in your life? And, and specifically here, uh, those, the author identifies are those who spoke the word of God to you. So who are the leaders that the author is speaking about here? He's specifically saying those who spoke the word of God to you. So and that can include here at Christ Community, if you're a child or a student, the, the Sunday school teachers, the student ministry leaders, community group leaders. But I think specifically the author has in mind those who are, who are pastors, who are elders, who are leading the church. So in other words, the author is saying, imitate me. Now, wow, that's not uncomfortable to say on a Sunday morning. Imitate me. And it, it is uncomfortable for me to say that this morning. But it's a central part of my job description as a pastor, as a shepherd, to be the sort of person whose life is worthy of imitation. The one comforting thing for me when I say that is that hopefully I can be the chief person who leads in in one authenticity as well as as in repentance of being the first to raise my hand and say, I haven't gotten it right. I need to repent and go back. But pastors, elders in the church are supposed to be people whose lives are worthy of imitation. So, so the question for us is, is who are you imitating? Are, are the leaders that we are following worthy of imitation? Are they rooted in God's word? Are their lives being transformed by the gospel? Is there evidence of that? Do you see that in their lives? Do they exhibit humility? Are they steadfast? Are they faithful? Are they willing to speak the truth in love? And, and also you need to ask yourself the question, is, is my life worth imitating? Because people are watching you. Your, your coworkers, your friends at school, your neighbors, they're looking to you. Someone is imitating you. So is, is your life worth imitating? So, so the church is, is about imitation. It's not about independence. 
And second, the church is about sound theological teaching, not, not merely theological sort of or therapeutic platitudes. Now, again, when I, when I use the language of the therapeutic here, I want to be careful. I have nothing against, and I'm actually really pro seeing a good counselor. And, and there's times in our lives when all of us probably could benefit from spending time with, with a good counselor. So not down on that. What I'm referring to when I say that, use that language of therapeutic is, is what scholar Philip Reef back in 1966 called the, the triumph of the therapeutic. And I, he has this great quote, and I think it, it's just, it captures so well. He says, religious man was born to be saved, but he says, psychological man was born to be pleased. And much more recently, sociologist Christian Smith has identified that the number one religion in America, and again, it's not an organized group, but what he calls moralistic therapeutic deism. He says, if you really do a study of American culture, what most people actually believe is something called moralistic therapeutic deism. And and that's basically the belief that God really just wants us to be good and happy and to feel good about ourselves, and, and that if we live a decent life, then we go to heaven when we die. But, but we're at the end of the book of Hebrews now. And, and if you look back through the book of Hebrews, you find nothing like that in, in these pages. This book has been rich with theology. And, and in these verses 8 through 14, it's mostly a review of everything that the author has been teaching up until this point in the book of Hebrews. You see, Hebrews presents us with a theology of a good God who created a good world a good and perfect, beautiful world, but also a world that was massively marred and vandalized when we as humans, his crowning creation, rebelled against him. Theology, the church is rooted in a theology that says we are in desperate need of a Savior and in the good news that Jesus is just the Savior we need. And notice specifically verses 8 and 9 the author says this. He says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He says, do not be led, by, led away by strange and diverse teachings, for it is good for your hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have been not benefited those who are devoted to them. See, every one of us is tempted to find satisfaction and hope and meaning and happiness apart from Jesus. The temptation is constant for those things. Everything is competing for this. I actually got a note a few weeks back from from a congregation member, um, and it was was a link to one of these articles of kind of, you know, the 10 things that really happy people truly do, or, you know, it's one of these ways to find happiness. And, And I loved what she wrote about it. She said, sometimes lies sound so elegant. Sometimes lies sound so elegant. She's right on. In a world that is rapidly changing, and constantly offering new, we must remember that Jesus is the, the one who offers a grace and a truth that never changes. This gives us great confidence, and, and I hope it challenges us and, and tells us things at times that we don't want to hear. And this is exactly what we would expect if, if we were actually in a relationship with a real person, Right? If God is a person who's inviting us to know him in a relationship, then we would expect that there are times that he's going to disagree with us. I mean, that's how real relationships work. If your friends and your family never disagree with you, if they never push back, if they never challenge you, it means probably one of either two things, either that you've never really gone that deep in that relationship, it's always stayed pretty much at the surface, or that they are afraid of how you'll react, and, and so they're fearful of, of challenging you or questioning you. But, but neither of those options leave us with a real relationship. 
If you want a real relationship with God, He has to be able to confront you. He has to be able to challenge you. He has to be able to call you out at times. If you want a real relationship with God, it has to be one in which He can say, I disagree. So so the question here is, is, what are we staking our lives on? Are we clinging to Jesus who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, who has promised never to leave us or forsake us? And do we hold on to him even when we don't like what he has to say sometimes? Because if you walk with Christ long enough, there will be times when he will say something that you don't agree with, that he challenges you on. The Apostle Paul, in his letter to um, Timothy, who was one of his uh, disciples, one of the ones who Paul said to him, imitate me, Timothy. He writes to Timothy and he says, there's going to come a time, Timothy, when people, they won't want to endure sound teaching anymore, but they just want to be told what they want to hear. And, and every one of us can be in the, a danger of falling prey to that, of, of finding people who will just tell us what we want to hear. So the church is about independence, not about independence, about imitation. It's about the theological rather than, than merely just the therapeutic. And then, then third, in verses 15 and 16, we see the response that is engendered by Jesus and who he is and, and what he's done. Look at verses 15 through 16. It says, Through him, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. And then he says, Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. You see, all of us love to be satisfied, and, and companies constantly send out sort of customer satisfaction surveys, right? And, and through social media, through the internet, we're able to, to rate our experience and give feedback on, on everything from, from the brunch we just ate to all the way to the, the, you know, the new vacuum cleaner we just bought on Amazon. And, and I think it's easy for us all, and me included, to sort of come into church with the same mentality of, of giving a rating, you know, to think of ourselves subtly as kind of like the Simon Cow or the, the Gordon Ramsay of church, you know, that we're here to sort of to give, give feedback and, and evaluation. But what if we saw that the church is a place to sacrifice ourselves rather than merely to satisfy ourselves? But what if we showed up with the expectation, even the desire to, to be givers and not takers, to be, to be contributors, not consumers? Because Hebrews is clear that, that we're done with animal sacrifices. That was that point of this whole thing of, that he went through earlier in the text that, that Paul read for us. The animal sacrifice piece has been dealt with. Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. But there are three sacrifices that we, that we still offer. They're, they're lips of praise, hands that work, and, and hearts that give. And we, we see this in the text first, the, the lips that praise, a sacrifice of praise. When, when we gather together, and, it, and the text actually says the sacrifice of praise continually. So this isn't just even on Sunday mornings, but uniquely when we gather here on Sunday morning to sing together, to, to pray together, to celebrate communion together, we offer sacrifice with lips of praise. But it, but it doesn't end when we walk out those doors. Our lips are to continually give praise to God in, in all things. But especially when I think about Sundays, when we gather here in corporate worship, it's not about us or our preferences. It's about the God that we're worshiping. It's about enabling the people around us to worship as well. It's, it's also hands that work, too. 
doing good to one another. And, and service is always a sacrifice. It's, it's hard. I mean, whether it's in your job or in your home, in your neighborhood, at your school, here at church, sacrifice is, is always characterized by service. And, and, and when you do that, when you're involved in that, it's always a sacrifice. But if you're not serving yet, if you're not sacrificing in that way, the thing is, is that you don't truly know what the church is about yet. It's only when you begin to sort of roll up your sleeves and get involved and serve in some way that you really begin to experience it. And it's also hearts that give. Because sharing is always a sacrifice too, isn't it? I mean, if you were to go downstairs and ask any of the two-year-olds downstairs, sharing is always a sacrifice. It's hard. But we are called all throughout the pages of Scripture. We're made in the God, image of a God who is generous. We're called to be generous so give. Give generously to those who are in need. Give generous to your, generously to your local church family. And again, if, if you're not giving generously, generously to those around you, to your, your church family, you don't yet know what the church is really about. As the text says, such sacrifices are pleasing to God. And finally, in verses 17 through 19, the author reminds us that the church is about gladness, not about groaning. The church is about gladness, not about groaning. Look at 17 through 19. The author says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you all the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. So this, this passage is, is simply calling us, these verses, to give your leaders gladness, not groaning, to obey them and submit to them. And the idea here of, of obey is the idea of trust and respect. It, it's not a blind submission, but, but a willingness to follow as we together follow Christ. I mean, pastors have a massive responsibility. I mean, did you catch that in verse 17? That, that they are, that, that I am, to watch over your souls as those who have to give an account. And that's not an account to sort of a, a board or denomination. That's an account to the, the triune God of the universe. That's a sobering passage. It's like no pressure, right? And, and there's a good reason that the author of Hebrews gives us this instruction because a congregation can make the life of its leaders, of its pastors, absolutely miserable. I, here are the results. I just wanted to share this with you. The results of a recent survey of over a thousand pastors. Um, did you know that, that 80% of seminary graduates abandoned ministry in the first five years? That's actually one of the reasons we started the pastoral fellowship program was to help reduce that statistic to help pastors get a good start so that they last longer than five years out of seminary. I'm going to cross that line uh, in this year, so five years. I made it. I'm, I'm not that statistic. Um, 57% say they would quit if they could. 70% of those surveyed said they had zero close friends. 70% also said that they battled depression. 80% are discouraged. 80% believe that their job endangers their family. 90% work more than 50 hours a week. That's, I know that's true for all of our full-time uh, pastoral staff at Christ Community. Um, the average pastor stays at a church less than four years. 
Also, I heard a story on NPR the other day, of all things, about the clergy health initiative at Duke University um, has started the study of pastor's health, and it found that members of the clergy suffer from higher rates of depression, obesity, and high blood pressure than the general population. Now, now in sharing those statistics, I, I don't at all mean to somehow make out that it's like you should have such pity on us as pastors. I love my job. Or, or even to say that somehow that my job is way harder uh, than your job. But I, I point this out to say that the health of your leaders inevitably affects the health of your church. And so it matters that we have healthy leaders And again, thankfully, I can say I absolutely love my job, and I love Christ's community. Again, this is a credibly, incredibly healthy church who cares for her pastors well. And so I want to thank you. Thank you for caring so well for your pastors. It's a gift. It is. Christ's community is a place where you can serve with gladness and not with groaning. And and so the question for us here is what makes a pastor groan? (laughs) What are the things that make your pastor groan? And then also, on the flip side of that, what makes your pastors glad? So, just a few practical things here. Um, these are a few categories of people who, who are guaranteed to make a pastor groan. First, you have the complainers. These, now, this, what I want to say, these aren't the people who give thoughtful input and humble critical feedback. Good pastors love that. They need those people because we don't see everything. We need good, helpful feedback. But the complainer is the person who's just always dissatisfied. Nothing's ever good enough. And, and they never want to be a part of the—they have all the problems listed out. They never want to be a part of the solution, and, and they are increasingly bitter. Complainers, they, they make pastors groan. And there's another category of, of people I, I think about called the mission drifters. And these are the people who are always brimming with amazing ideas that the pastor, here, just do this. This is a great idea. Here, you take this and do this. But they can tend to pull us off of our central mission. One, one of the key roles of, of leaders in any organization, whether it's a church or a business or a school or a home, is that the good doesn't become the enemy of the great. All of us have to watch out that, that good ideas don't pull us away or somehow diminish the great mission that God has called us in in our city. We all have to be vigilant of that. Another category of person who can make the pastor groan is, is the consumer. These are the people who just, they just take and take and take. And that, that exhausts us. And, and not just, again, because we need your help. We always need your help. We, the church is constantly, it's about serving one another. So it's not just that we need your help. But again, if, if you're not engaged in serving, if all you ever do is just come and, and take and receive, but, but never give back, never serve, never plug in, then, then you're missing out on all of the goodness that God has for you in his design for the local church, for us to serve together as a family. So those are a few ways that you can make a pastor groan. But how do you make a pastor glad? What, what just brings joy to us? First, to grow. There's nothing that excites us as your pastors more than to see you growing in the gospel, to see your life being transformed, to, to see you, even to have you share with us, this is what God has been teaching me. This is how I'm being changed. I was talking with John the other day. We were walking back. We'd come back from a meeting with someone, just some phenomenal people in our congregation. And John just said to me, I just, I love coming from those meetings. Because it's just energizing when you see someone's life who's being transformed by the gospel. 
So grow. <laughs> Second, share encouragement. I have a folder, like a physical folder in my office in my drawer, and it's labeled encouragement, and it is stuffed full of cards and notes and letters that I've received from you telling me about this is how God's been working in my life. This is what you're doing. This is what we love your family. I have a, a folder in my email as well full of notes of you sharing stories of how God is at work in your life. Share those things with us. Share how God is at work. That makes us glad. Third, partner with us. Share a passion. Serve, give, invite. Seek to outdo one another in your love for our local church and for the city that God has placed us in. It brings us delight. And finally, pray for us. See verses 18 and 19, the author says, pray for us. (laughs) Pray for us as often as you think of us. Even, may, even when, and maybe especially when, you're confused or hurt or annoyed by something that we've done or said or haven't done or haven't said, we, we need your prayers more than anything else. If I can humbly ask that as your pastor to pray for us, not just for me, but for John and for all of our pastoral staff, for our elders at Christ Community. Pray for us. So the church is about imitation, not independence. It's about the theological, not just the therapeutic. It's, it's, about the, it's about sacrifice, not just satisfaction. It's about gladness, not about groaning. And all of this is, is possible because the church is fueled by grace, not by guilt. We can't miss that. All of those things, what makes us a community like that, what allows us to be a community like that is the fact that we're a community that's fueled by grace, not by guilt. Did you catch that verse back in verse 9? It's one of my favorite verses in all of Hebrews. It's just kind of tucked in there. But in verse 9, it says, it's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. It's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. Grace is the food, it's the fuel, it's the energy, it's the life force of Christians. You see, the difference between religion and the gospel is that one is driven by guilt and one is driven by grace. Religion is constantly driven by guilt. The gospel is fueled. It thrives on grace. And and here's the thing, though. In the short run, a life that's fueled by guilt and a life that's fueled by grace externally can actually look a lot alike. You'll end up doing a lot of the same things. You'll, you'll be engaged in serving. You'll be at church all the time. But the motivation, the reason why you're doing it, the, the spirit about you when you are doing it will be radically different. Because, you see, religion is a death march. But the Christian life fueled by the grace is a marathon. What's the difference between the two? Some of you are thinking, man, the marathon sounds like a death march. <laughs> the difference is this. They're both difficult and grueling at times, but one is done at the point of a bayonet, the other is joyfully undertaken. One is maintained by threats and beatings. The other is maintained with aid stations and cheering crowds and constant encouragement. One ends in death and condemnation. The other ends in life and unending celebration. The only way that we can be a community like this is if it's fueled by grace, if our hearts are strengthened by grace. It's good for us to be strengthened by grace together as a community. Let's pray together.
Uh, Father in heaven, we're so thankful that you have given us the gift of Jesus, the ultimate expression of grace, who through his sacrifice on the cross has made that grace, this unmerited favor, freely available to every single one of us. And then that grace is just our response of obedience, of service, of, of all these things. Is just a, it's just a joyful response to what we've already been given, what Jesus has already accomplished. So I pray that even now as we come to the communion table and, and begin to partake in that, that we would find even there a mark of, of grace. In Jesus' name, amen.